but it's great to be together. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet in person, my name is Bob Seal. As Brent said, I'm the executive pastor here. I've been on staff for six years. My first four years were spent working alongside Pastor Tim Heist in building our student ministry called TSM. And the last two years have been in this role of executive pastor. But Timberline has been our family's church home for 15 years since we moved from the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I have three kids and one wife. And here's my kids. Trey is in the middle, our son, Shannon on the left, and Riley. We love them. They're great kids. The youngest, Riley, we, my wife and I just dropped her off at college at Azusa Pacific University in L.A. We're empty nesters. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. I'm not, I'm, I like it. I don't like it. I'm not sure yet. But we, my wife, Rosalind, and I have been married 29 years. And uh, she's my lovely bride. And we had anticipated this moment, so we actually got a black lab puppy named Zoe, so we wouldn't be exactly empty nesters. That's her BFF right there, Eliza, Pastor Tim Heist, and his wife Melissa's dog. And it's embarrassing, but Tim and I get, we have puppy play dates. They get together, and it's, it's embarrassing. But that's a lot of cuteness right there, isn't it? I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and Virginia before it was all built out and all homes and condominiums. And there were lots of large tracts of woods and undeveloped country with creeks and rivers running through them. And those were essentially my playground as I grew up. And the summers in Virginia were the best when you were a kid because I would wake up, have breakfast, jump on my bike, and I would ride around the neighborhood picking up our gang. There was about 12 of us, our crew, that adventured together. And our favorite place to adventure together was the creek. Now, the creek, if you were from Virginia, you didn't call it the creek, you called it the crick. That's right, and the crick was a magical place. We hunted for crawdads under rocks in the crick. Crawdads are little mini lobsters that you can, you can grab, and we fished, and we took, made rope swings that would drop into swimming holes. And back then... There were no cell phones. There were no fancy apps for parents to keep track of where their kids were. We were often miles from home. And you know what? Our parents didn't care. They were just glad to have us out of the house. And every day our moms would kiss us goodbye and they'd be like, hey, be careful out there. And we, were, we would think to ourselves, okay, mom. But as we walked out, we're like, what she's talking about? We're going to be dangerous. We're going to play with matches. We're going to run with scissors. We're going to do some serious adventuring. And things one year, one summer, when I think around 10 years of age, things got even more adventurous because our parents weaponized us. We each got pocket knives, and we would go to the creek, and we would chop down sapling trees, and we would sharpen the tips of these trees, and we made spears, and we tried to spear, spear fish, and we tried to spear squirrels, and when we didn't get any of them, and we never did, we just threw them at each other. <laughs> we had spear fights. If there's any kids in the audience, public service announcement, don't do that, okay? <laughs> But it was amazing. It was a time where when you came back with welts on your body from the spear fight, little Johnny's parents didn't get mad. Nobody called the police. It was a different time. Twice a day during the summer, we would wander back in the neighborhood from the creek. 
and at lunchtime and at dinner. And, and every evening around 5.30 or so, we would be in the neighborhood and a strange thing would happen. Parents one by one would walk out onto their front yard and they would yell something like my mom did for me. Bobby, dinner time! And you would run home. Now some of you are in your 20s, 30s, younger, you're just like, my mind is being blown. What do you mean they went on the front lawn? Yes, there's the time before your parents communicating to you by text. When they wanted you, they didn't text. There was no text. They just shouted out you at you out in the neighborhood. And we got to know not just our parents' voice, but we got to know the voice of each other's parents. We even could tell when one of us was in trouble and would not be coming out to play later that night. <laughs> I, I knew whenever I got this call to dinner, Robert Wilson Seal, dinner from my mom. I knew I was in trouble and so did my friends. They just would look at me and shake their heads and they're like, sorry, bro. <laughs> but most days I got home to happy enough parents and to a uh, lovingly prepared meal and we would sit down at the dinner t table and we would have dinner and conversation together about the day's events. And after dinner, we would go back out and we would play until it would get dark. And then the street lights would come on. And we all knew that when the street lights came on, it was time to go home. I wonder if God called you or called me in for dinner, if we would recognize his voice above all the activity and the other voices in our life. I think it's probably pretty important, don't you, to be able to recognize God's voice when he calls us and wants to have a conversation? And what would he say? How would he call us in? How would he call me in? Would it be, Bobby, dinner time? Or would God be like, Robert Wilson Seal, dinner? And what would we talk about around that dinner table? One of the most common questions we get as pastors is about hearing the voice of God. And I believe that it's possible that we can hear his voice and get to know it. But the question is, where would we start? You know, children learn their parents' voice as soon as they're born. Some even say before that. And remember how you learned to pick up your parents' laugh out of a crowd? Or you could tell their mood from the inflection or the tone of their voice? Well, just like we learn to recognize and distinguish the voice and the mood of our parent, parents, I think we can learn how to distinguish God's. And we learn to hear our parents' voice by proximity or our closeness to them. We learn to, we learn to hear their voice through relationship, and voice and relationship always go together. And it's no different when we're thinking of God's voice. It's proximity. We hear God's voice by having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It's the key to hearing his voice clearly. Now, maybe like me, you've got some friends who, they, they hear God's voice more clearly than do, you do. They're so assured when they talk about it. It's like the downloaded the God app on their phone and it works like Waze or Google Maps and it's like turn left into the parking lot here and you'll find a parking spot at the mall. All right, it's go to the 1130 uh, service because they're going to be handing out the leftover donuts instead of going to the 10. They, they seem to hear God's voice and it's so clear to them 
But if I'm totally honest, sometimes I don't hear God's voice quite as clear. In fact, if I were honest, sometimes his voice, I wonder if it's make-believe or I'm imagining it. Now, the best place to start to understand, to hear God's voice and distinguish it from the other voices in our life is to take a look at the words, the life of Jesus. As as it's been recorded by four people in what we call the Gospels, it's there that we get the most tangible tangible picture in the clearest idea of what God would have to say to us if he called us in for dinner and for a conversation around the dinner table. We're going to look at Jesus' voice by looking at his opening remarks of his longest recorded sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at what he has to say and see if we can catch his voice. The theme of this sermon, the overarching theme, is the kingdom, God's kingdom. And it's not a kingdom that's somewhere, it's neither here nor there, and it's not at a later date. It's a kingdom that's here or now, and that kingdom is in us, in those of us who have a relationship with God through Jesus. And it can be defined as God's rule in our life and in the world. Bob Goff um, puts it much better than I ever could. If you're following in your notes, point one is Jesus is interested in building a kingdom and not castles. And Bob Goff contrasts it this way. We actually build castles all the time out of our jobs and our families and the things purchased. Sometimes we even make castles out of each other. And some of the castles are impressive too. Lots of people come to admire what we've built over the course of our lives, and they tell us what great castles we have. But Jesus told his friends, we weren't supposed to spend our time building castles. He said he wanted to build a kingdom. And there's a big difference between building a kingdom and building castles. You see, castles have moats to keep creepy people out, but kingdoms have bridges to let everybody in. Castles have dungeons for people who have messed up, but kingdoms have grace. And if we want a kingdom, then we have to start where grace did, by drawing a circle around everyone and saying, you're in. Kingdoms are always built on people, and there's no plans, there's just Jesus. Jesus is is interested in building a a kingdom, not castles. Now, the location of this sermon is by the Sea of Galilee, up on a hill that overlooks the sea. But before Jesus gives this sermon, he's in the cities all around that, that location, and he's drawing quite a crowd. Today, you know, it was before social media, but he was growing so much energy and momentum, they actually would have said Jesus was going viral if he was alive today. And here's what Matthew says about this. Word got around the entire province of Syria. People brought anybody with an ailment, whether mental, emotional, or physical, and Jesus healed them, one and all. More and more people came, the momentum gathering. Besides those from Galilee, crowds came from the ten towns across the lake, 
others up from Jerusalem and Judea, and still others came from across the Jordan. And when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside, and those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. That's an odd choice, isn't it? The church planning is just getting going. He has momentum. People are coming to the church from all over for these services. He has critical mass. If it was a business, the business plan is working. The marketing plan is working. There's demand for the product. And sales is up. But Jesus doesn't look like a very good business person here, does he? Or a church planner, for that matter of fact. Because just as the momentum gets moving, he picks up and leaves and he goes on a little bit of a walkabout. But I don't think this is some type of whimsical wandering. I think this was calculated by Jesus. This was strategic, leaving all the activity and the success. And he moves on to something that he believes is more important It doesn't say how this exactly happened as he walked out of the town towards the mount. Sometimes I like to take a passage like this and imagine myself in it and fill in the gaps. And I think maybe it looked something like this. Jesus, at the end of the day, the last healing had been done. He brushed off his cloak and he began walking out of the city a different way than he had in the days and weeks before. And one of his apprentices saw him walking off. Let's call him Stan. I don't know, Stan. And, and Stan runs up to Jesus. He's excited. He's like, Jesus, hey, great job today. I mean, you were awesome. You killed it. I mean, no, you didn't kill it. You healed it. But you know what I mean. And he's like, high five. And Jesus is like, nah, fist bump. I think Jesus liked fist bumps a lot more than high fives. And then Jesus walked along and Stan was with him. He says, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus looked at Stan. He said, hey, don't worry about it, Stan. Just come and see. And they walked by one of Stan's friends, and Stan's friend ran, or Stan's friend ran up to Stan, and he's like, hey, where's he going? And Stan was like, I have no idea. He just said, come and see. I'm sure you could come along if you want. I think Stan said this because he knew Jesus was someone who was welcoming and always inviting people, anyone along the journey. I see some, think some of the crowd was walking Jesus, Stan and his, watching Jesus stand and his friend walk out of the city. And so they joined along thinking that maybe, just maybe, something exciting was going to happen. But nothing exciting did happen. No healings, no sermons. And the crowd that started with them began to thin out, especially as the miles added up. And the longer nothing extraordinary happened and the hotter it got outside, the fewer the number of people that were following. And I think a whole bunch of this crowd stopped as Jesus got to the bottom of the hill and started walking up it because they thought to themselves, I can probably spend my time more productively than climbing a hill to a remote place where there is no Starbucks or Dutch Bros at the top. Jesus takes his apprentices from the excitement and the fast pace of ministry, of producing, of doing, of winning, of possibly building castles to a place where he would not be competing for their attention, where there wasn't as much noise so that they could hear his voice. Pastor author Mark Batterson says that a change of pace 
plus a change of place equals a change of perspective. A change of pace plus a change of place equals a change of perspective. And Jesus took them up the hill to, be, to a quiet place to have a perspective-changing conversation with those that were committed to him. And he wanted to change their spec perspective and make sure their perspective about God and his kingdom was just right. If you're Taking notes, point two is Jesus' voice often sounds like an invitation to a conversation. Do you ever feel distracted in your life? Is it ever noisy? Is it ever too noisy really to pay attention to your faith life or to Jesus? Listen, I'm not pointing fingers here. My main mode of operation is action. And I get it, slowing down doesn't seem like a good idea to me. One of my mentors says it takes a crook to know a crook. So I like to be in action. But when there are things to do, responsibilities to manage, when there's mouths to feed, it's okay, I think, to ask the question, will slowing down and giving Jesus my full attention, if it's part of my day or part of my week or part of my month, will it have a good return? turn on investment or ROI. See, we live in a world where we're rewarded for what we produce, what we get done, for how busy we are, for building castles. But Jesus thought that getting away to have a perspective-transforming conversation was more important than all the doing. And so maybe that might be important for us to do as well. All right, do me a favor. You've climbed the hill now. You're sitting with Stan and his friend, and you're in the front row. And Matthew says that Jesus sits down on the ground and begins to teach them. And this would have been the traditional uh, posture that a teacher would have assumed to begin his teaching. And you're in the front row. Can you imagine? If there's no stage, you're eye to eye with Jesus. How cool would that have been? And here's how Jesus starts his inaugural, inaugural address of his sermon. Read this along with me. Let's read it together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven's. This section of the teaching is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And to paraphrase my favorite scholar and teacher on this, a guy named Dallas Willard, the Beatitudes are not teaching on how to be blessed. Or they're not a system of attitude adjustment where we can please God or how we can be accepted by God. These, are instruction, these aren't instructions on how to do anything. They're illustrations 
from the present lives of those who have followed him up the hill. And he's saying to these committed ones that their circumstances are smaller because of the personal relationship that they have with him. Jesus is saying there's real hope in him. Remember who he invited up? It sounds like invited were the poor. Those mourning and grieving the loss of someone or the loss of something. Invited up were people who had been serving others and they were tired and there was those who felt powerless. And in the crowd there were probably some who had been sick mentally, spiritually, or physically that Jesus had healed in those cities. And to them, in this inaugural part of his sermon, he's saying three things to them. He's saying, if you're taking notes, I see you. I'm glad you're here. And I am bigger. Jesus' voice sounds something like this. I see you. I see your circumstances. I see what you're going through. And you know what? I don't just see the circumstances or the you that you project on the, eyes in, on the outside. I see what's going on in your heart and in your mind. And then he says, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for making the effort to climb the hill. You're not just welcomed, you're wanted. And lastly, he says, I am bigger. Look what he's doing. He's taking their perspective, their focus from their circumstances, their castles, the excitement of what went on in the city, and he's taking all of that and focusing it on him. And he's saying, I am the son of God. I have the questions to, I have the answers to the questions that you're asking. And I have the power to give you the life that you were created for. Do you feel seen by God today? Or does he seem distant? Do you have the sense that he's glad you're here? That you're warmly wanted? Because that's the voice of God. The infinite personal God through Jesus is saying to you and saying to me, I see you. And I'm so glad you're here. And I am bigger than anything you're facing in your life right now. I actually have made it a practice to start my days that way. Before I swing my feet off the bed, I think to myself, I imagine God saying to me, Bob, I see you. I'm so glad I've got your attention this morning before you get going. And remember, today I'm bigger than anything you're going to face, and I'm with you in it. That's a good start, isn't it, to a sermon? Well, remember, you're in the front row now. Jesus is getting going. You feel warmly welcomed. You can't wait to hear what he says next. And he, he says this. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Jesus takes a little dark turn there, doesn't he? But he's saying you're, you're people who bring out salt flavors in this earth. And we'll get to the losing the saltiness piece. 
But being salty today is not a good thing, okay? But what, back then it was a good thing. Salt was uh, a preservative. It was a flavor enhancer. And Jesus is saying to this group of people assembled on the hill where he has their attention, he says that you are people who bring out the flavors of life and relationship in this world that point towards God. He's letting them know that this kingdom life, that it, it, it comes through them. Life tastes different from them, and people can get a taste, and they will want more. Well, Jesus is still on a roll, and he kind of continues to go on, and he says this. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out God colors in the world. And God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. And Jesus begins speaking to their identity here. When you look in the mirror in the morning, who do you see staring back at you? I mean, you're like, duh, Bob, it's a mirror. You, don't, you know how they work? Myself. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the self-talk that goes on in your head. When you look at that person in the mirror in the morning, what do you think? What have the voices from the years, the days, the weeks before told you about that person in your identity. And Jesus, Jesus is talking to her identity here. Do you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and you're like, oh yeah, there he is, light bearer, salt giver. There's the guy who brings out God colors in this wor world and brings out God colors in his relationship or God flavors in his relationships. Is that what you do? It seems silly, but that's who Jesus says we are. And I've made it a practice over the last few months while I'm looking in the mirror getting ready for the day and remembering Jesus' voice to me, Bob, you bring out salt flavors or God flavors in the world. You bring out God colors in the relationships you have. And for me, it seems to change everything because Jesus is saying here, it, you, won't, you won't be a light bearer if you work really hard and someday you'll achieve that status. He is saying that is who you are because of your relationship to me. And I will use you to draw people into the kingdom if you will let me. The question is, do we hear his voice? And that gets us to the saltiness, losing the saltiness part. In your notes, the voice of Jesus might say something like, you're kingdom players, not spectators. Reality TV faith won't do. There's a reality TV show for everything, right? You've got, you've got for adventure, there's survivor. You've got for relationship, there's big brother. You, you've got for fishermen, there's deadliest catch. There's something for everybody and everyone. And the thing that they have in common is someone sitting 
in the safety of their chair, comfortable, where they can spectate, never fail, never get voted off the island, never get rejected. In fact, it requires no effort at all. And Jesus is saying that reality TV faith won't do. In fact, reality TV faith might cause you and me to lose our saltiness. And Jesus warns that our saltiness is in danger when we sit on the sidelines or try to take shortcuts to God or we fail to recognize his voice. And we won't lose our saltiness all all at once. We'll just lose it a little bit at a time. And eventually Jesus' voice will seem distant or imaginary just like my parents' voice did when I failed to come home at the right time and they were calling from a distance and we couldn't distinguish our parents' voice one from another. God will become distant. Lastly, and this is not in your notes, but it's a freebie, free of charge. Life is like dodgeball. Winning and losing starts with picking the right team. Some of you are like, Jesus did not say that, okay? And so if you look in your Bible, no no matter what translation you have, it's not going to be in there. When I was in elementary school, we played this version of dodgeball we called Monk and I. We took two dodgeball courts and we put them together and balls were flying from everywhere. And the king of the court in my elementary school was my friend David. David was six feet tall in sixth grade. He wore husky tees. He had a voice as deep as Barry White and he had a full grown beard. All of that's true except for the beer part. And he would throw the ball what seemed like 250 miles per hour. And one day when I was on the opposing team, David let loose a fastball right at my head. And at that moment, everything went into slow-mo. Have you ever had that happen when something bad's happening and everything just seems to slow down? I felt like I was in the movie The Matrix, okay, and this ball's coming towards me and I start, I'm trying to get out of the way and I'm like, oh. (laughs) Apparently I wasn't in The Matrix because the ball hit me right in the face, knocked me to the blacktop, my head bounced off the blacktop, I saw stars and then I looked up and I saw this shadowy figure with a blinding light behind him and I thought to myself, Jesus, Uh, David's fastball had killed me. And then Jesus, he lifted down, he bent down and grabbed my hand and he pulled me up and then I saw it wasn't Jesus, it was my friend David with a big smile on his face. He's like, hey, sorry, Bobby, that one got got away from me. (laughs) Dodgeball is like life. It's exciting, fun, and exhausting, but sometimes life throws a fastball and it hits you square in the face and knocks you to the ground, doesn't it? The ball can be a lot of things, relationships gone wrong, the loss of the loved one, a loved one, the loss of a career or your reputation. It could be cancer, depression, anxiety, financial stress. You know the list because like me, you've got one. Remember when Jesus said that you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth as it's commonly translated? That you there in the Greek is plural. It's as if Jesus is saying, you folks, you guys, or if you're from Jersey, you guys, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In fact, you're better together 
then you are apart and you're brighter together than you would ever be on your own. We were made to do life in this faith journey together. And when we take headshots, we need a team around us to keep us in the game, to have our back, to encourage our faith. And a Jesus-centered community of believers is no more catching or attractive than when our backs are against the wall and we support one another. We learned something pretty quickly that year in dodgeball that the game of dodgeball wasn't won and lost when we played. It was actually won or lost when we picked the teams. We knew before a ball was ever thrown which team was going to win by how well the captains had picked, and it's the same in life. Who do we have on our team? Jesus even had a team. In fact, he went up on a mountain and prayed an entire night before he came down and picked his 12 disciples. Am I as intentional about my team, the people that I surround myself and pick to be on it? Are you? Do you have a winning team? Are you inviting people into your life? Or are you trying to do this faith life alone? Because sometimes Jesus speaks through other people, and they can hear God's voice when you cannot. They can pray prayers you can't, and remind you of God's power when you feel powerless. When I think back to those summer days of my childhood, I try to imagine the sound of my mother's voice calling me in for dinner. Bobby, dinner time! But that's all I can do is imagine. I lost my mom when she was 16, when I was 16 years old. And 39 years, time and distance, have faded my memory of her voice. I knew it once, but now I have to imagine it. It seems pretend, it seems make-believe. And I don't share this for you to feel sorry for me. I share this because I want to make the point that I don't want to lose the voice of Jesus in my life. I don't want to time or distance or neglect to deafen the sound of his voice. And I, don't certain, I certainly don't want his voice to become pretend or make believe. I never want to miss his call to dinner the invitation to come and rest and to sit around a dinner table and have a perspective-transforming conversation about who he is and who I am and what he would like to do together to build his kingdom. I want to go out and adventure and play in his kingdom after dinner. And I want him to make me catching. I want to be someone that brings out God colors and God flavors in the world to the people around me. And I know that you want this too. Not because I would presume to know you, but we all were created for this kingdom kind of life. And I know the years, or the, the weeks are long, but the years go fast. And someday soon, the street lights are gonna come on for all of us. And when I go home, I want to hear Jesus' voice say, Bob, I see you. I'm so glad you're here. 
welcome, light bearer of the King. Let's pray. Jesus, you know how we came here today. You saw not just the outside that we carefully curate to project an image, but you know our hearts and our minds and what's going on in the inside and our circumstances. And today you've stirred something in us. We think maybe we've heard your voice and your invitation to a conversation. And maybe some of us here for the first time have heard that you see what's going on inside of us, the things we think or do in secret, and the fact that you would see us wholly and you would still say, I'm glad you're here. It's overwhelmed us. Thank you that you see us. We're warmly welcomed into your kingdom and that you are bigger than any circumstance or thing that's going on in our life. And Jesus, some of us are tired from our circumstances or exhausted from our schedule or the striving to build castles. And you're inviting us today to a quiet place, to have a change of pace, and to make a place for you in our days, in our weeks, in our months, where we're quiet and you have our full attention. Give us the courage to change our schedules or our habits so that we can concentrate on you. And lastly, some of us have been trying to do life together or life alone, and we need to do it together with some other friends. We need to pick a team. We need a team. Would you provide some people to walk with us through life and this faith life that would encourage us along the way, especially when life throws a fastball to our head? For some of us, you're encouraging us to join a small group or maybe open up our small group or your small group to invite some others in. Give us the courage to not do life alone. Give us a good team. And make us catching people. Make us a church that brings out the God flavors and God colors of this world so that others will be drawn to you. We love you. Thanks for having our attention this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.